when spending any time in Scotland, you will be absolutely surrounded by the four elements, whether it's the lochs for water, or the rolling hills with earth, volcanic rock for fire, or the wind howling through the hills. You will be immersed in the elements. So this week on the Folklore Scotland podcast, we are going to be chatting about folktales that incorporate uh, earth, water, wind and fire in some way. So this week I'm going to be filling in uh, for Mila because she's ill, um, but she has kindly provided her entire script for me to read. Um, so Mila was looking into water. Scottish folklore tales about water or the creatures that live in it seem to always involve elements of danger, threat and even death. Water is always seen as an element to be feared. Unlike earth, wind or fire, it's full of hidden mysteries and evil beings that lurk beneath the surface waiting for their time to pounce on unsuspecting passers-by. In my research, however, I came across a type of fairy known as an ashray, or alternative spelling, ashray. Which, podcast listeners, I can tell you that those are spelt differently. Which is a creature that not only lives by the water, but is the water, returning to its element form upon its death. Ashrays are water fairies that were first mentioned in a Robert Williams Buchanan poem from 1872 that was simply called The Ashray and was a prequel to his poem A Changeling, A Legend of the Moonlight, which also mentions the creatures. The name Ashray is said to derive from Loch Achray in Loch Lomond and is often cited as the origin of the folklore tale, though alternatives also suggest the existence of similar fairy creatures in England and Wales. However, today I, slash Mila, We'll only be focusing on the Scottish version and Robert Williams Buchanan's poem. In the tales, ashrays are said to be translucent and look like people. They have the youthful appearance of those in their 20s, despite being very old, as well as being incredibly beautiful and usually with long hair and glistening skin. They also must avoid direct sunlight, as it is fatal to them and causes them to melt into a pool of water. Brackets. Beautiful, pale, glistening skin and can't go into the sunlight. Edward Cullen? Is that you? <laughs> Ashrays are, however, very short, usually being no more than four foot tall, and due to their translucent appearance, they can also be mistaken for ghostly spirits. These delicate creatures are often found in the water, but can also appear on the surface of streams, rivers and locks, and unlike other folklore creatures we've covered, they avoid human contact and have little to no desire to harm anyone. In fact, they live in harmony with their kind and other creatures. To help them avoid the sun, they only come out on cloudy rainy days or after sundown, allowing them to roam freely during the times of day when humans are less likely to encounter them. This is because a human touch can dissolve the ashrays into their water form and kill them. Similarly, ashrays cannot last long on land and will slowly perish if brought ashore or if they come into contact with soil. Therefore, capturing an ashray is extremely difficult, but as they don't usually roam very far as they cannot cross the land, you can always know where to try. Should you accomplish your mission to capture it and treat the ashtray with kindness and respect, this will result in good fortune in return. Though tales of fishermen who have tried to capture ashtrays still do not make it clear how to bring the creature inland, as while they can survive on the boat, touching them without gloves would be lethal to the ashtray and also cause harm to the person. In one story where the fisherman caught an ashtray, he received fiery burns where he made contact with the creature before it perished, serving as a warning that people shouldn't meddle with nature. Ashrays are generally considered peaceful beings, however in Buchanan's poem, the ashray from the changeling is an example of a more evil spirit as a male ashray possesses a human body to become a changeling, and throughout the story seeks to find an immortal soul so it can live forever on the land. 
In the original Ashray poem, the creatures are seen as more inquisitive and trusting, even of the unknown. And here is an excerpt of the poem. Tis midnight, and the light upon my desk burns dim and blue and flickers as I read. The gold-clasped tome, where stained yellow leaves feel spongy to the touch, yet rough with dust. When Clary from her chamber overheard, her bright hair flowing brighter from the brush, steals in and peeps and sits upon my knee, and winds her gentle arms around my neck. Then, sidelong peeping on the page antique, rains her warm looks and kisses as I read. Before man grew of the four elements, the ashray grew of three, fire, water, air. Not earth. They were not earthly. That was air, the opening of the golden eye of day. The world was sylvan, moonlight mystical, flooded her silent continents and seas. That's not one I'd ever heard of before. Um, I suppose, like, it's not one of the better known ones because it is so kind of, like, dubious as to where it's from. Um, like, we've got the, the, like, the origin around Loch Lomond and in the poem. Um, but as Mila said in her research, they also kind of appear in Wales and England as well. You know, I think we could count on one hand the number of nice folk creatures we have. You know what was giving me? Very Lady of the Lake, you know, yeah. kind of this wispy, ethereal creature. Yeah, it's almost kind of, yeah, it's almost kind of like a mix between um, like a Will-o'-the-Wisp and a brownie in a way yeah but and there really isn't very much about them online at all and very little in like the the texts really uh, mentioned in the buchanan poem i think there's a couple other tales but they'll all be um collated from england so hard to know how much of it blends over with the scottish ashray he says, the ashray wandered, choosing for their homes all gentle places, valleys, mossy deep, star-haunted waters, yellow strips of land kissing the sad edge of the shimmering sea, and porphyry cabins in the gaunt hillsides, frosted with gems and dripping diamond dews, in mossy basins where the water black bubbled with wondrous breath. The world was pale, and there were things of pallor, flowers and scents and shining things came later, later still. Sounds like a dream, to be honest. I'd like to be an ashray. They sound very chill, although don't like the idea of dissolving at touch. Well, I think a lot of these kind of mermaid style creature things, other than your kind of parallel growing Scandinavian ones, there's quite a bit linking through the kind of Celtic down the Germanic roots mm. to do with them, because most kind of Celtic nations like Germany, England, Wales, well, not all of England, but the portions mm-hmm. in relation to these legends and Scotland, bits of Ireland, all share similar creatures with various different names. Um, The thing at the beginning, that they're made from water, fire, air, but not of earth, because they're not earthly beings. That's quite interesting, because normally when you have, like, a beast in folklore, this is, like, a real thing that you could come across. Like, they are earthly, even if they're um, a fairy beast, you know, that comes from whatever kind of fairyland. They've got a deep connection with earth so that i guess that's quite interesting to see if they're not from earth where do you think they're from and considering when he was writing he's probably wanting to talk about some kind of spiritual crossover or you know when they started Mm. to believe that like um like elves and things that was popularized later i think in the 1800s wasn't it when 
elves were considered to live in this like alternate plane kind of thing they weren't from earth they just like could cross over And the story that I'm going to cover as part of covering the element of air is to do with a bird, or rather a lot of birds and a dude who spoke to them. Uh, when I was first looking into the topic of air, I now instantly I went to the story of the Battle of the Birds, but that story is a large epic and very long, and actually only the kind of first page involves birds, really. So I thought maybe not, that could be for another day. Then I remembered a little uh, children's story about an eagle and a wren uh, in which the eagle and the wren challenge each other to a race to see who can be the highest, who can get the highest up in the air. And the wren sought straight up and uh, chilled about and the eagle slowly circled round and round, going higher and higher in altitude. And um, it, it was much better at flying the wren, the wren tired quickly thinking oh it's not going to manage to beat the eagle it just perched on the eagle's back and it was always a little bit higher and it was a kind of tortoise in the hare story but then i thought that one was too short so i found a happy in between the goldilocks zone thanks to um the one and only graham johncock <laughs> he's not here with us this week but he still contributed although he doesn't know it <laughs> it's a story about um the lord or laird or in this case clan chieftain or all three um, who first built a castle at Aileen Donnan um, so the story starts with a chieftain and his son um, and apparently in Scotland it's not a legend I've ever heard of but if your first born child um, drinks from the skull of a raven that's where they drink their first drink from uh, they'll be granted a special power. Wow. Now, this clan chieftain was like, oh, this nonsense superstition of the low peasantry. I'm not going to bother with any of that. To show them it's just all nonsense, I'll get my firstborn son to take his first drink from the skull of a raven. And that's what he did. And um, he thought everything was fine, you know, clearly nonsense. But after a while, as the boy started to grow up, he started to exhibit strange behaviour around birds outdoors and uh, one day the lord saw him speaking to a flock of birds that were in the courtyard uh, chittering away to them in a, an unknown language um, the lord was a bit the chief was a bit concerned but he didn't mention much to the boy he just continued about his day until one day the boy told him what the birds had been saying to him they told him one day his father the chieftain would wait on him as though he was his servant. Now, uh, the chieftain wasn't for having this and took it as a grave insult and sent his mad son out into the world to wreak some havoc elsewhere. So, the boy went out on his mission to find his own place in the world and uh, he made his way over to France, which was an ally of Scots back in, the Scots back in those days. Uh, and he heard that the king had been having an awful problem with a large flock of sparrows. They kept twittering when he was trying to get about his fanciness and whatever the kings of France do. He was busy doing such things and the birds were winding him up. So, and everyone knew about it. So this lad was like, right, I'll go have a word for the birds for you and get them to weeshed. 
And so he had a chat and settled what was going on with the birds, negotiated peace with the birds. And uh, the king was so happy that he gave the chief's son a big grand sailing ship so he could sail the seas and go on his adventures. And off he went, sailing about the bit. And next he found a castle that was plagued by rats and had a word with the birds. And they did a bit to help, but they couldn't solve the whole problem. So he left his ship's cat there to sort out the rest of it. And they were grateful and left him with wealth and, and more repute than he had before from the king and the birds and all that jazz. And then he thought, you know what? I've, I've had a great time adventuring in my fancy boat and I've got lots of money. I'll go back to Scotland to wave it in my dad's face. So he appeared back at Scotland and went to see the chieftain and the chief greeted him with great ceremony, not knowing quite who he was because he'd just heard of this legendary adventurer who was solving all the problems of the world. Or in this case, relatively minor problems, but it made important people happy. So... Um, he greeted him well and, and treated him to a banquet and then after a while he realised oh, this looks like an awfully familiar person and then on seeing a birthmark that the boy had had he realised that that was his son and the legend had come to pass that he would wait on his son like a servant um, despite all of what he attempted and throwing him out and going hoping he'd never see him again the, the legend had a way of coming back around and Unlike most stories in Scotland where they end tragically for somebody, it, it really doesn't. The, the chieftain was a bit miffed that his, he was now outfamed by his son, who then went on to become uh, a chieftain greatly in favour of King Alexander, who commanded him to build the strong fortress at Aileen Donan and made him the first chief of the clan Matheson. And so actually became um, more famous and of a bigger clan than his father was before him. But in general, everyone was happy. His dad was still a chieftain and he was an even greater one. And that's the story about a dude who could speak to birds. It kind of gives me um, Joseph and his amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat vibes. No, because like, Joseph has this like talent where he can um, read people's dreams. And then, I mean, he gets cast out by his family, his brothers. Um, and he ends up working for the pharaoh, read, like using his talent for dreams to help the pharaoh out with his dreams. And then he gets lots of riches um, and he becomes really powerful and he goes back to his family and his family don't recognise him. It's Joseph. But but on the other hand, if Joseph was like, all right, all right, I'm going to read your dream. Ah, your dream said that I'm going to be so much cooler than you and like everyone is going to love me so much. I'd be a bit like, yeah, all right, see you, Joseph. I'm not speaking to you again. <laughs> like, my teeth fell out. I know that's not what the dream meant. That, that happened in 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 the like in the musical. I don't know about like the actual story, but in the, in the music- musical, in the musical, right? He has two dreams. He has a he tells his brothers that, oh, hey, I had these two whack dreams, right? I had a dream that we were all stars. Um, and there was this one really bright star and all the other stars bowed to the bright star and the bright star was me and like the other dim stars were you this guy in that he was like well you're gonna bow down to me yeah exactly so yeah, I, I just I just think there's a lot of similarities there, there. <laughs> Joseph could talk to birds yeah I think because the, the bird yeah, power the bird is like is. Joseph's dream power right it's yeah. the equivalent got the bird power yeah to the birds yeah anyway let's the bird power yeah. the True. And birds are yeah, often seen as omens or portents of things to come. Actually, another Very one true. with air. He was famous for going about the world on his sailing ship. Needed air to power ah. it. <laughs> I'll shoehorn that in as well. <laughs> <laughs>
taken everything you can get. Yeah. <laughs> Did anyone have any thoughts that didn't revolve around musical theatre slash the Bible or b- biblical musical theatre? There's lots of weird birds in Scotland. Um, yeah. Capricaly. Have you ever heard one of those? Mm. If I saw a guy trying to do the Capricaly noise, I'd be a little bit suspicious. <laughs> what are you communicating? Can't be right. <laughs> I couldn't find an awful lot more about him than Graham's story. There was a couple other stories that were almost identical that were kind of published 10, 15 years before, but nothing going back before 2007 that I could find, but it must have, I just can't find the sources on any of the materials. There will be something somewhere, I'm sure, but mm-hmm. it's just hard to find, and I've looked at kind of all the things that have Aileen Donnan in it that I can find about the flat and it's not mentioned there but a lot of stuff isn't mentioned because Aileen Donnan is quite interesting in terms of history so they tend to focus on more of that side of thing because of the big curtain wall that was there beforehand and then the inner fortress was built Mm -hmm. later and then the big buy over at the start of the 20th century who rebuilt it as a kind of new old construction to, to play the clan chieftain lifestyle I think being able to speak to birds would either be really, really cool because I think they'd have the best gossip or really, really rubbish because like they just would not show up. Yeah. <laughs> and you also, you always hear birds around. Imagine well, yeah, like, they you would... could hear, understand what seals were saying. Like, my chip! Give me that chip! chip! Give me that chip! Give me chip! <laughs> but I think it is quite common that you've got a lot of um, people from folklore that are able to speak to birds. Weirdly enough, I feel like it's rare to be able to speak to animals. But being able to speak to birds is like, just interestingly, it's like you can speak to birds and that's your gift. No one else can do that. Whereas if you come across an animal that speaks like a different animal, then that's the animal's power, not your own. It's like if I hear a deer speak, it's because this is obviously the white heart or some kind of incredible deer and not because I can speak to all deer. I'm just thinking of um, weirdly enough St. Olga from Ukraine I think she's often um, depicted with birds and I think she also had the power yeah she gave each of her soldiers a pigeon or a sparrow Um, so she's always depicted with these birds and I think in later stories it was suggested that she could speak to them and that's how she was able to do this but uh she used them to avenge the death of her husband. Just a really badass saint I suggest you all look into. Sadly, not Scottish. Do you think um, the whole kind of like, that kind of ties into what you were saying about birds being um, things that you can use as an oracle. Do you think it's actually kind of a metaphor for these people are just really wise and good with like, um, you know, scrying and like the... and seeing the future and things like maybe it's speaking the language of the birds is that they're just really good augers i don't know probably a bit of both right because they used to um read chicken guts wasn't it um Mm -hmm. in order to divine the future and same with like bird bones and yeah like it like birds feature a lot in like divinatory rituals um saint francis of assisi as well he was hugely famous for speaking to animals and, and specifically birds within that mm-hmm. so he, I think he could speak to animals more generally but he, like most kind of writings and yeah. subsequent poems and depictions and paintings of him is him and the birds and 
Hess was always said to be that he was so devout he wanted to preach to the animals as well as the people. But mm -hmm. I think it would be tied in with the kind of idea of him being the wisest person there and, and possibly divining something from the relationship with the animals in that. And I suppose, like, coming from a perspective of someone who, I mean, nowadays we know what's up there. We fly planes, like, we've sent rockets up into space. But, like, in a time before anyone could do that, birds, like, you'd look up at them and you'd be like, where are you going, bro? What have you seen? Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, if you think <laughs> of yeah. flights of some of them, like, swallows yeah. will migrate thousands of miles a year and yeah. they're little tiny birds and then geese over to Canada and back every year. Yeah. And, like, maybe people viewed them as, like, the closest earthly thing to God. I don't know if that's being dramatic, but... Well, I know, they've always been depicted as messengers and not just because of their use as, like, physical messengers. But if you think about, like, you can you know when um, fall is setting in because all the geese fly south and then they'll fly north again near spring. So it's a good way... Like, that feels a bit, like portents as well to be like ah oh, springs around the corner in a time where although i suppose you could track the moon like you knew when the seasons were coming but it was just like how do the birds also know this and um, same with like um, more specific migratory patterns so things like um eagles there's certain eagles that fly from africa to roost in scotland and like it's for certain months every year they come at the exact same time so if you knew that, like if you were like, I only see this bird when this or that event is going on, that could be quite interesting, I suppose. Definitely feels yeah. like a message of some kind. My tale is a little different than the others. I'm not looking at a beastie of the air or beastie of the water. I'm looking at the element of fire and fire is most well known for its uses among people. Uh, you know, Prometheus came down to give humans fire and that's what led to our civilization. And people have been using fire throughout history for both good and bad reasons. And one such person who used fire in this way was Donald Cam McCauley. Most listeners will have heard of William Wallace, Robert the Bruce and Rob Roy, but Scotland is full of legendary folk heroes who seem to split their time between great feats of daring and nigh-on villainy. One such hero was the Donald Cam Macaulay. Donald was Chief Macaulay in his day, around the early 1600s, and lived in various forts around Uig. He spent some of his life as a mercenary, returning to his homeland of Lewis and causing such mayhem that the authorities attempted to expel the whole clan from their lands there. Folk hero he may be, but this one definitely skews a little closer to the villainy. His fierceness with the sword was certainly powered by his impressive temper. In fact, it's thought that he got his name Cam, in Scots Gaelic meaning squint, from a particularly fiery quarrel with a smith at Neep during which the smith put out one of Donald's eyes with a red-hot poker. That wasn't his only encounter with the element. One summer, while Donald Cam and his men were absent from Uig to hunt on the Flannan Isles, the Macaulay's old enemies, the Morrisons of Ness, saw an opportunity to strike at the heart of Donald's devious clan and invaded Uig, stealing cattle while they were at it. On Donald's return, his people told him of the marauding Morrisons igniting that man's fierce temper. 
He stomped and raved about the town, spitting out curses with such vigour that sparks shot from his lips. He summoned his men to the shores of Loch Rogue, in the hope of overtaking the Morrison raiding party. By the shore of a lochan near the old Pictish fort, Duncarloway, they found their cattle grazing. Upon the rise, they spotted the telltale light of campfires in the fort. They would have no chance against those fortifications, however. So Donald decided to rest by the loch. However, as men started grumbling and complaining of hunger, they hadn't had time to rest since returning from their hunt, you see. Eager to unleash some of his frustration, Donald went off in search of food, taking his trusted lieutenant Big Smith with him. They were a fearsome pair. While one lacked depth perception and the other height, they more than made up for it in ferocity. The assumption that Big Smith was a small man is not based on any historical fact. However, I know enough about men's nicknaming patterns to understand that calling a small man Big is the funniest possible move. The two men snuck around the hill, careful not to alert the Morrisons of their presence. When nearing Duncarloway, they saw a huge cauldron on the fire. Even better, the chef seemed to be napping beside it. The smell arising from the cauldron was tantalising and recognisable. Someone was cooking beef. Macaulay beef, to be exact. The men exploded from their hiding place. Big Smith launched at the sleeping chef, grabbing his jaw in a firm grip to keep him from crying out as he jerked awake. Donald grabbed the hunk of meat from the cauldron, ignoring the searing pain in his calloused hands. Grinning at his comrade, he made off down the hill to his famishing crew. Big Smith, meanwhile, made sure to replace the meal for the poor Morrisons, promptly dumping the poor chef into the pot. Emboldened by the double stolen cattle, in all honesty, the Macaulays were likely to have stolen the cattle themselves, and on top of that, likely stolen them from the Morrisons. Would they have triple stolen the cattle then? At what point in this game of hot potato did the cattle collapse from dizziness? Donald Cam and his men closed in on Dun Carraway. At the entrance to the fort, Donald slew the sentry. No man could beat him one to one. He stationed Big Smith there, knowing the little man's reputation would deter the Morrisons from trying to leave through the front gate. At this point, his enemy knew he was here, but they weren't too worried. The Macaulays might steal their cattle back again. Again. But the Pictish fort had stood for many a century. It would surely protect them from the mad squinter. Donald was not to be beaten. He scrambled up the tapering walls of the dun with the help of two dirks, swinging steel through stone like butter. He found the top of the fort to be covered by a large, flat slab. Again, nothing to stop Donald Cam. Grasping the side of the stone, Donald pushed with all his might, channeling his fire and his fury. Snails broke, blood vessels popped in his one good eye, but he succeeded in pushing the stone aside, revealing the interior of the dun. His vengeance not quite complete, he commanded his men to collect the driest parts of the heather and bind them in large bundles. Tossing the bundles up to Donald Cam, the men watched as he threw these into the tower before lighting fire to the whole lot. Inside, the Morrisons were burned, or smothered. The last thing they ever saw was the shadow of the daring Donald Cam looming above him, his single mad squinting eye blazing with a wildness brighter than the flames that devoured the fort. The drama. The absolute drama. What a guy. He's literally, like, for sure, for sure, stolen those cattle. 
So they got stolen back again, again, again. And he takes them and he's like, uh, I'm not going to stop there. I'm going to set them on fire because I'm hangry. <laughs> it's weird, though, because like it's a, an, a, like obviously a horrible thing to have happened. But like the way it's told is very much like this is a folk hero. Yeah. How, how many cows are we talking here? Like, was it a, a massive undertaking stealing the cows back and forward? Or was it like a few of them? It just seemed to be like this was the way things were done. Was that like, if you saw the opportunity, you'd wrestle some cattle. And like, mm-hmm. you'd go up and down the coasts and clans would steal from clans and villages. Yeah. If you saw cattle unguarded, you'd be like, I'll be having them. Um, And it's like, Donald Cam's not the only one who did it. This is just one of the more popular stories he was like quite a larger than life figure on lewis um and this is one of the most like better recorded stories i found lots of information lots of evidence the story is told almost the exact same way throughout so one of the more concrete tales that we have and probably means rooted in some kind of true event and i imagine the like uh it's it's said afterwards that him and his men dismantled the fort so not only were they like ah burn the morrisons take it down take down the whole place so at the and that ruin is one of the best preserved um brocks in scotland definitely visit it it's lovely it's just this really lovely so you have like the old like the central tower so i believe the way these used to be built was that you'd have this large round tower and then you'd have four smaller towers around that and they used to think it was primarily for defense but there's a lot of evidence now like archaeological evidence that it was actually just where pictish people lived um and it's yeah the one in the one at duncarloway is still beautifully preserved and they found a lot of really important archaeological finds there it's got a great visitor center as well i've been it's really interesting um cool. Side note, if you've ever seen Brave and you know that Merida lives in Dunbrock, that translates to Fort Fort. Yeah. <laughs> Dun is the, I think, the Highland word, Gaelic word, and then Brock is the Lowlands word. <laughs> so it's like Fort Fort. <laughs> fort, fort. <laughs> um, I totally see what you mean, though. Like, you know, he's busy burning these people and it's told as, oh, that rapscallion. Yeah. What a guy, you what, know, he's just I such a rogue. What well, I wanted to speak a little bit about, like, the lovable rascal, which is this real, like, way that people are represented in folklore. It's that you get criminals who are shown to be, like, Robin Hoods, and if they're not, you know, fighting the rich or to and aiding the poor, you're like, they're they're helping their society and fighting against the real evil people which is capitalism but like you also get ones who don't do that but their exploits and their shenanigans are just so entertaining that they become famous so think of dick turpin for example like this was a real a highwayman a bandit like he killed people and people sing about him matt bainton does the sexiest song i've ever seen in my life (laughs) But so Jeffrey Jerome Cohen says that the monster also attracts the same creatures who terrify and interdict can evoke potent escapist fantasies. And I think it's the same, like cattle stealing and 
scuffles between groups were really really common in the highlands and this like was an at the time probably a really horrible thing to hear happen but then afterwards you've got this like space where you can look back and say actually he's a pretty what a what a rascal he was like he was a larger than life character and he's so entertaining and that's another thing greg jenner who's the author of dead famous an unexpected history of celebrity please 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 read this book he said writing about extinct threats was perhaps like shark diving in the safety of a steel cage and he's exactly right you know people talk about these things after highland cattle stealing is not really a problem anymore and then it's like nostalgic and it's fun Look at the yeah. good old days where everyone was free to roam wherever they wanted. Yeah, and to me, like you know, it's the space that we have between the actual people and their deeds, and like the people that it harmed. Yeah, we've got examples from literally all over the place of criminals and petty criminals, especially becoming like folklore heroes. Um, but you also get ones of like genuinely quite frightening people and if you think about it in a different way serial killers are kind of not romanticized to the same extent but you can commit a violent crime and garner the same kind of attention that you know a folklore hero like donald cam does except donald cam has the excuse of during that time kind of everyone was a serial killer so (laughs) he blended in So the last element in our episode today is Earth, and I'm going to be talking about a rock. Specifically, the Devil's Rock. Crail is just one of many picturesque seaside towns along the Fife Coast over in the East Nuke of Fife. Its name likely comes from the Pictish word care, meaning fort, and indeed, there's there's another fort. We could have Care, care Dunbroch. Fort, fort, fort. Um, anyway... So its name likely comes from the pictures word care, meaning fort, and indeed the town appears to maintain much evidence of its pre-Christian life. If you visit Crail, take a walk along South Market Gate, past the Golf Hotel, along the parish, along to the parish Kirk, where you'll find a devilish tale. One day, from deep in hell, the devil heard work happening from above. Curious, he ventured out and caught sight of work being carried out to build what appeared to be a church. The devil, feeling mischievous, disguised himself as a mason and approached the master mason. Master, he said, gave me a job as a mason on your site. The master mason looked the devil up and down and shrugged, for all he could see was a young man with soft blonde curls, plump cheeks and soft pink hands. Why would I do that, boy? He grunted. I'm the most skilled mason in all the land, the devil said with a grin. I'll have your church up in no time at all. The master mason laughed and made to turn away, but the devil caught him on the shoulder. I won't go away, I'll stay right here until you give me a job. At this, the master sighed. It had been a long, hot day and he was rather looking forward to getting home. What harm could an extra pair of hands do? Besides, some manual labour would likely do the boy some good. All right, he said. Go and work with the apprentices. And with a firm glare, he looked at the devil and said, and don't make me regret this. So the devil got to work. Now, it should be known that our devil is no liar. He was indeed a skilled mason, for his abilities were imbued with witchcraft. As if overnight, the kirk appeared to spring up in no time at all all seemingly thanks to the young apprentice that had appeared and asked for work. The master mason was quite pleased with this, enjoying the credit the locals gave him for the speed of his work. 
Anyone who knows of our devil should know that he is not the generous sort. So what motive could such a hellish fiend have for building a church? You see, the devil knew that if he worked to build the kirk at magical speed, the locals would first be impressed with the master mason. But soon, when walls and spires started to spring up overnight, the townspeople would grow suspicious of the master mason. For what could make work happen so fast other than witchcraft? There was one apprentice on the site that was suspicious of the devil. He didn't trust how the tools seemed to move like quicksilver in his hands and and that he could have ten times the work any of the other boys could do in half the amount of time. He watched the devil carefully from his post and noted the way he slinked away each day at dusk until one day he plucked up the courage to follow him. It was as the young apprentice was slipping around one of the incomplete walls that he saw something which he would never forget. His jaw dropped and face went ghostly white, for as the mysterious apprentice slinked away into the gloaming, he morphed from a young man into a beast. He grew twice in height, his clothes melted away, and where his legs once were, two goat-like legs with cloven hooves burst forth. A forked tail slicked out from his rear, and two razor-sharp horns glinted menacingly on his forehead. The boy gasped, perhaps a little too loudly. For the first time, the devil seemed to jump with fear, and he spun around to face the boy with the anger of an enraged bull burning in his eyes. You foul fiend, the apprentice shouted, stumbling back around the side of the kirk. May God have mercy on the souls of we masons, the devil's in our midst, he cried, running as fast as his legs could carry him out of the kirkyard into the street and through the town. All the while, the devil was hot on his heels, and he could feel the very flames of hell licking his trail. At all the commotion, the townspeople opened their doors and windows, peering out from their evening supper into the street where a young mason apprentice was being hounded by the very devil himself. With all eyes upon him, the devil stopped in his tracks. The boy scampered away and the devil knew he was lost. With a heavy groan that shook like thunder, he stamped a cloven hoof on the cobblestones and in a fiery instant was gone. Suddenly, no sooner after he had departed, there was a great rumbling and a blistering crash that shook the town and toppled over the evening supper. No one knew from where it had come, until the next morning when the masons were setting out to work on the church. To their great shock, they found their work decimated, a great boulder slap bang in the middle of the rubble, and on its surface, a molten thumbprint. The devil sat on the Isle of May only a few hours out of town, laughing as he watched the path of the stone fly through the air. The story story of the Devil's Blue Stone is used to explain how a blue stone just outside the gates of Crail Parish Church found its way there. While the story of the devil hurling the stone at the town after being unmasked as the devil is an enticing one, it's actually far more likely that the church was built on on a pre-Christian holy site, like so many are. And that was my tie to earth, because the rock is earth, and lots of holy ground in Scotland is also um, pre-Christian holy ground. The end. There's so many stones in Scottish folklore. Just people hurling whatever they want. The giants yeah. throwing stones. There's so many. There's Rob Roy stones. There's William Wallace stones. Mm-hmm. I think actually, um, Donald Cam has a stone. I know some of the ones like down in England with Stonehenge and everything. It was all quarried stone and stuff. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. A lot of the ones in Scotland seem to be well, at least now quite natural forms. I don't know if they were as much quarried or just they found big boulders. So it's literally like they just found a nice looking rock and they were like. You're coming home with me. Yeah. <laughs> you also get a lot of cup stones as quite common earthy features. And these stretch back to the Bronze Age. And we don't really know quite what they were used for. Um, 
but some there's some kind of idea that it might be might have been used in tool making or some kind of domestic practices like nut cracking or arrow production processing food things like that but you find a lot of cupstones at uh, religious or spiritual sites as well i feel like stones and rocks are kind of aside from maybe like you know permanent bodies of water like locks they're probably the most kind of long-standing no pun intended um like heart like thing that harbors folklore in our natural world you know because like trees and plants die um whereas you know on the one hand that stone that's in that field has probably been there for a long 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 time and lots of generations of people have told the same story about it and as you say on the other hand you know we've used rocks and stone in so many things you know domestically and um in rural work in life um in general like they're just they're very pervasive both just because like they last a long time and because they're useful off the back of that there was quite an interesting theory put forward in investigating there was quite a bit of evidence found for it to do with actually stonehenge down england but similar kind of principles are thought to apply up here of um, near Stonehenge there's a larger henge site which was in wood mm-hmm. um, with concentric circles in wood and it and there it, it's connected to Stonehenge by a river mm-hmm. and it's thought that the reason one was in wood and one was in stone is the wood was where they went just after they went there once or twice a year for a big banqueting festival and it was with the kind of ashes of the dead and things it was to celebrate just the very end of life, the brevity of what life is, and as a celebration of that kind of short time frame. And then they'd sail the ashes down the river to Stonehenge, which was marked as a permanent structure to the ancestors, and it was seen as like something that would pass down the generations as a <coughs> an immortal structure. Um, and I think that kind of permanence is why it still to this day holds such a, an important thing to us and in Scotland with all these standing stones and you know, cut mark stone, pictish stones it's something that holds a permanence and as mm-hmm. the theory there for Stonehenge was that it was a, a monument to the ancestors and, and part of that journey um, and that's kind of something that you find around the world, they have similar things in, in India, across parts of Africa um, and, and especially in South America you see a very similar ideas with stone being the mark of permanence and, and kind of a tribute to a long lasting mm-hmm. legacy and, and memory. Even nowadays, you know, we still use stone to mark graves and exactly. memorials. It's just something that we've always done. Mm-hmm. On a more jovial note on the story, I really enjoyed that the devil just showed up and was like, I'm not leaving until you give me a job. Like I wish that worked. <laughs> Like, can, yeah. I, can I do that on any future interviews? Like, I'm just staying here until you give me the job. <laughs> Devil is saving up for a PS5, so actually he needs a job. I don't, I don't quite, I don't quite get it because I feel like this might be a case of having a blended, like this was a tale that existed and then associated with the church. Like, if, as you say, this stone may have existed here before the church was built, 
and had its own story associated with it about some kind of giant or carpenter, you know, who threw the stone. And then that was replaced with the devil because I can see like a creature from Scottish folklore just like, I'm here for a shenanigan, lads. And like, (laughs) that's it. But like the devil tends to have a more like he's gone into this without any kind of like, I'm here to corrupt. I'm here to bring you to hell. He's just like, no, just I would like a job, please. I seem to recall another story with a similar idea of like a a master mason with a pact with the devil style thing. I wonder if it's a a A recurring theme. theme. Hmm. You definitely get a lot of themes about like people upping their skills with a pact with the devil and then like coming to regret that. But I think you have that existing beforehand. You know, like you get a lot of stories of um, Greek gods and Norse gods gifting favored mortals with like a special skill, which mm-hmm. they then come to regret. Midas. So we've got a permanent rock, a ethereal impermanent water, a frightening fire, <laughs> and a bird, and a bird, <laughs> and a bird. And those are the four elements as told four by Scottish elements. folklore. Yeah. Earth, fire, water and birds. Yep. Thank you for listening to the Folklore Scotland podcast. We'll be back every week with more folkloric content from stories to analysis. The podcast is brought to you by Folklore Scotland, the charity that aims to make Scottish folklore accessible using digital platforms telling the tales of the past with the technology of today. If you'd like to become a voluntary contributor or would like to get in touch, pop us an email at info at folklorescotland.com and you can find all of our social media as well as a list of sources in the show notes below. The charity also now has a Ko-fi page which you can find in the show notes if you'd like to help us continue the work that we do. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.